Hey everybody, this is Nick Padiak. You're listening to I'll Be Damned. My guest this week is Rick March. He's a comedian and actor in the Chicago area. He and I did Barefoot in the Park together with, with Chris Miller, who was the first podcast guest that I had on here, if you've been, if you've been listening that long. Uh, I went over to Rick's house, had a, had a very good talk with him. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks, as always, to Alex Johnson for the cover art and to Matt Pickett for the I'll Be Damned theme song. Uh, here it is. Enjoy my talk with Rick March. And I try not to be like that, I, you know, because let's face it, it, social media in its own right, if you spend too much time on it, you make yourself nuts. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, every Monday morning, everyone has had, every comedian, and here's where, where I think we'll pick it up again if it's okay with you for, because you can edit this. Right? I can edit this, yeah. sure, sure. Every Monday morning, 99% of the comedians have had an amazing show with an amazing crowd, an amazing and amazing and amazing mm-hmm. and it's not really yeah, it can't be no it can't be really. I mean it's what I enjoy is I enjoy connecting mm. I had a show last Friday at uh, at Maggiano's in Naperville mm-hmm. what they did was they took a, a banquet room they sold tickets gave them dinner the audience dinner and then after the dinner there was comedians who performed and I headlined and these were people, the audience was 30s to 70s. Yeah. And not your usual comedy club audience, but they had a good time. And there's a, there's a, there's a part of my act that I do where I talk about being a comedian and how we're, you know, because they're kind of like, hey, why don't you use this in your act? Right. And I say, don't do that, because we're all damaged. And I sing a parody of uh, Twisted Sister, We're Not Gonna Take It. Mm. We're so fucking damaged. Mm. And there's a point in one of the verses where I go, we're so fucking damaged. And I turned the microphone to the audience, and they sang back, we're so fucking damaged. And these were, first of all, obviously strangers. Right. People who probably won't go around saying we're so fucking damaged, <laughs> but they did it because the connection that I made with them and they made with me was there and was strong. Yeah. And that was that's why I keep going back. That's why I keep doing stand up. Because yeah. you go places and you meet people and you do th- you say and do things in the moment that will resonate with them, will make them laugh. They'll walk away feeling better. You walk away feeling better. And if I insult somebody at the end of the show, I walk up to them and I shake their hand. Or if in the middle of the show I was a little rough on them, I go, give it up for this lady. Sure. Not there to piss anybody off. Well, you don't want to make enemies, especially with the gun laws the way they are. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you never know. I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what stand-up comedy is to me. Well, is that why you got into it to begin with? Oh, why did I get into it to begin with? Um, I had, I was 13 years old. My parents took me to see Don Rickles at the Mill Run Playhouse mm-hmm. in the golf mill. And 
this guy ran around insulting people. Right. And the audience loved it. And I went, I, I want to. <laughs> he can get away with that. Yeah. Show. So if he can get, because I, you know, you get to call people fat and stupid and ugly. Sure. And everybody's laughing. And so I go, okay. And then I put it on hold and did business and businesses and things. And, For how long? Uh, 30 years. Oh, shit. So when did you actually start stand-up for real? When I was 47. Oh, shit. Yeah. So you were you were a legit, honest-to-God person before that. Yeah, I was damaged. I had to make sure I had enough damage. Sure. Yeah, you can't to... just start, you know, no. fresh-faced. And... No, because otherwise, what are you going to talk about? Unicorns and how my battery ran down on my iPod. <laughs> iPod, listen to me. <laughs> on my Walkman. Right. I had to replace the batteries in my Walkman <laughs> twice. So where did you where did you grow up? West Rogers Park. Okay. Chicago. Yeah. Went to school in Syracuse. Why Syracuse? That's that's a long way. Long way from West Rogers Park. Yeah, well we moved to Highland Park and then I everybody in Highland Park went to a good school, mm-hmm. whatever that was. Brown, Harvard, Cornell. I couldn't get in there, so I went to Syracuse. So you just went, you went for proximity to Ivy exactly. School. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, it's in the East. <laughs> and what'd you do there at I Syracuse? studied management. Management? Marketing okay. management. Yeah. And is that then what you went into after? No, then I went to be a commodities trader. Jesus, you are damaged. Uh, on, this, on the floor of the exchange, yeah. and I did that for 13 years, and got married and got divorced, and then I stopped doing that, and... And then I ran a business into greatness and into the ground. Was it your business? Of course. Started it? What was it? It was telecommunications. Mm. When long distance was actually a thing, I sold discounted long distance services. And then I sold sold prepaid phone cards that allowed uh, promotional messages to be heard. Because when you would use a prepaid phone card, you'd hear, this phone card brought to you by Elizabeth Arden. Or whatever it was. Okay. And so that's, I sold those to corporations and they had their little logos and things and it was brand management stuff. That sounds horribly dull. It, it was actually kind of exciting because really? this was, there wasn't a whole lot of internet marketing. We used the internet for a basic website and then for email. Yeah. There were no flash, there was no online surveys. Yeah. So, and, but thanks for saying that my life sure. was born. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's no. what I'm here for. No, right? Okay. No, that was great. <laughs> and you're, you're the you're one s- who said you were damaged. I'm just pointing it out, I'm, man. Emotionally, but now thanks for <laughs> professionally too. Thank you for pointing mm-hmm. out that I was wasting my time. You got it. Right, well, I assume that you knew at a certain level that you were wasting your time, at least wasting your talents and your creativity. I mean, was it tough? Did you always feel like you were kind of like bumping up against? Something did you feel like you were not doing what you wanted to do? Well, I learned I learned a couple of things in the interim bef- after trading and before this. I did in-home sales of window siding, soffit fascia gutters, um, and I learned how to connect with people and I learned how to talk to them. Mm-hmm. And that's you know, and learn how to be a salesman. And when you're a comedian or when you're an actor or when you're whatever, the first thing they say is you have to identify who you're talking to mm-hmm. and you have to connect with them. Mm-hmm. And I think that gave me a leg up. And you learned how to manipulate conversations 
so you could connect easier mm-hmm. and identify you know identify with their customer oh yes I had three cats I'm allergic to cats oh <laughs> oh yes my daughter went there I don't have a daughter sure so you learn um, how to lie no it's not lie it's connect it's to make them comfortable yeah. because it's not like I was selling them drugs or a product that didn't work you just have to gain their confidence in however you do it mm-hmm. and you do that a lot by telling the company's story and whoever you're representing, and you, you know, you build a quality. If you're delivering shit after what you say, then obviously it's pointless. Yeah. But I wasn't, um, and I did that, and then I moved into telecom, and telecom was was a lot easier because it was you're paying twenty four cents a minute. I can sell it to you for twelve. Yes, mm-hmm. no, oh yeah, because you know telecom expenses in the eighties and nineties were. A real thing now mm-hmm. long distance is free and yeah. that's that yeah so that business went from zero to three million dollars a year in sales and then to zero because the industry changed right. Right. and so stop move on another divorce and then hey let's do stand-up comedy <laughs> Well, that, all right, hang on. First, I want you to go back and answer the question that I proposed, that which I posed was, to you, which was, did you feel like... My creativity? Were, yeah, did you feel like you weren't doing what you wanted to do? Like you were you were yearning for another life, a life in stand-up or in the arts or something? I was yearning to... I, I mean, look, I enjoyed it. I did... I was profitable. I built something. It was a different mindset. It allowed me to be entrepreneurial. Now, if I was to put on a suit and tie and go sit in a cubicle and then just go out and see clients and then come back in the cubicle and do reports, I I don't think then I would be happy. But since it was my company, I could do what I want. Mm -hmm. Uh, I took the risks that I wanted to take and they paid off. My creativity, my ability to be a joker or jokester has been... It's part of me my entire life. And I always found a way to incorporate it. Mm-hmm. Saying the inopportune, saying the worst thing at the worst time is just, yes, I do that. <laughs> I mean, you know from our experiences backstage, there were times someone in our cast would say something and you and I would just look at each other and laugh because you knew what I was going to say <laughs> and it would have been inappropriate. Right. And that's kind of... That connection that we established there, because you knew, oh boy, she just laid out a big matzo ball, and what's going to happen? <laughs> and I just did you know, not too easy. Right. And so I can create that kind of opportunity, and because that is an opportunity to, you know, somebody walks in and says blah, you're know, like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things that you know that people say in everyday conversation that they just is like it's stop it. Like let me tell you the truth. What does that mean? You've been lying to me so far. Right. And I will stop them and say, No, no, lie to me, I prefer. Because you're a pain in the ass like that. I am a pain in right. the ass. Well here's the thing. I listen. Mm. I choose to ignore sometimes. Right. But I hear it, I listen, and I observe. All right, okay. Would you, would you take me through the, the process? Was there a, a specific time? Was there a, 
a switch that you flipped where it was like now now's the time for me to start comedy. Like you said, there were two divorces, there were there were a few business ventures, etc. But was it like fuck it, now's the time? I'll tell you when it started, when the creativity thing started, went back to college. Um, there was a local radio station, I mean an on-campus radio station called WJPZ in Syracuse. Mm-hmm. Um, the program director was on my floor in the dorm. And I said to him, listen, I'd like to maybe, you know, work there. And he goes, what do you know about radio? I said, well, turn it on and it's radio. <laughs> and this was an AM Top 40 mm-hmm. thing station in the 70s. So we had to do our own board, which meant potting up the 45s because there were 45s, right. which are records to the people who were listening to <laughs> Little records that people would put on record players. Sure. And you would... The needle, I've heard of them. Sure. Right, I know you have because you... <laughs> You've read a lot of books. Sure. Anyway, the way Top 40 works is you, there's like a 15 to 30 second musical intro before the whoever the artist starts singing. Mm-hmm. That's when you talk over it. Yeah. And we, I'd sit there with my watch and I'd go, Super JPZ is WJPZ Syracuse. The time is 325 in the Metroplex. Mark Richards, here's Cool in the Gang. And then it would play. And mm-hmm. if you... You had to finish that before Cool and the Gang said whatever they said. Right. Well, one time I couldn't get the the record to play. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I had a conversation with myself in different accents. I said, Mark Richards here. Mark Richards... Maury, I can't get this to work. What do you mean you can't get it to work? Why don't you just push the button? I, Maury, I'm pushing the button. I don't care what you're doing. And I went back and forth like that. Improv. Just, exactly. Okay. And I got calls and people were like, who is that engineer? <laughs> and I was like, okay, are you kidding me? So that's when it clicked and started that I could create in the moment, yeah. different jokes, different characters. So I created that accent and the, the uh, Latino accent, uh, and it worked. It was fine. And did you just keep. Did you keep doing that on the air? I did it at certain times. Yeah. And I and I would even say, and Maury will be in, and maybe Grandpa, and you know, and mm-hmm. Nanny will be by, and uh, we'll all have a good time. Yeah. So that's when it really started. And then in college, my roommate and I decided we would host or try to be MCs for the Muscular Dystrophy Dance Marathon. Okay. It was, they called it Dance for Those Who Can't. Mm-hmm. And how you audition for that is we did stand-up. Now, we weren't off book, and we had just written some stupid puns and jokes that we did. If Rowan and Martin... Burns and Allen were dying <laughs> of a, a terminal disease, that would have been this. Gotcha. <laughs> and we didn't get to be hosts, but we got to be, they said, come and do this act while during the show. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so we got a time slot, and this is a 
36 hour dance marathon. Yeah. So our time slot was hour 22. Holy shit. Yeah. And while the bands were changing. Yeah. And we got up there and we gave it our all and nobody left. <laughs> and it, the guy with the moving the drums dropped them. And I'm, we're like, what does Tridel stand for? Dem Def Dogs. And Zeta Psy, zero pricks. Yeah, no, but he dropped it, not because he didn't rim shot. <laughs> and the only person who laughed was our other roommate because he was mocking the shit out of <laughs> Right, he's laughing at you falling on your face. Oh, yeah. So yeah. this was me on stage at 19. And it was like, okay, that's got to do. No, 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 that's not right. We got to do it better. We got to mm -hmm. do it better. Uh, so, always been a wise guy, always had wise things to say, wise cracks, mm -hmm. making fun of people, a la Don Rickles. Mm -hmm. Not really good in life. Right, that, yeah, you might get punched in the face. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's okay. Punched in the face doesn't hurt. It's the heart. It's so sensitive. Mm -hmm. And then after my second divorce, I took a comedy, stand-up comedy class. Was that, what was the impetus for that? Just because, you know what, let's give it a shot. Mm -hmm. And I liked it. I got laughs. I learned how to write a joke, uh, how to create jokes from things that are personal in my life. Mm -hmm. As, and I hit open mics and I hit a ton of them and I started hosting a showcase so I learned how to learned how to be a host mm -hmm. and I watched a lot of YouTube of certain comics and how they would not so much their material but how they delivered and how they connected with the audience mm -hmm. who were the ones that you particularly leaned on or were drawn to? George Carlin, mm -hmm. Richard Pryor, uh, Louis Black. The stand-up of Jon Stewart, the early stand-up, mm -hmm. so effortless and so clean and so easy. I saw him at the Rosemont Theater, obviously years ago. He did an hour and a half and uh -huh. just talked to people. Um, I don't know any, I mean, any of my friends, contemporaries who would want to do an hour and a half. And he just did it and enjoyed it. Yeah. Or showed us that he was enjoying it. Yeah. And that's that's my key. I'll keep doing this until I can't connect or I don't enjoy it. Mm -hmm. uh, there are times that it's the gigs are too few and far between. The money isn't the money is horrible. Mm -hmm. The ageism, the the whatever that the clubs clubs like big clubs will book you if you can bring people into the room sure uh, I do a lot of corporate work based on my ability to connect with the audience that's and I do roasts that's my favorite thing because guess what I'm making fun of people right so I get information about them I write jokes I keep those jokes on index cards and I level the room and that to me is fun yeah and if I could do if I could do a roast a week until I die, I would be the happiest guy on earth. Yeah. That's fun. 
So I'm interested. You can tell me to fuck off. We don't have to talk about this. You've mentioned a few times that you're damaged, emotionally damaged. How so? (sighs) Well, there's stories of childhood. I blame my mother for everything. What Jewish kid doesn't? Um, you know, everybody's got a parent who was an asshole. Maybe two. Um, maybe two parents who are assholes. Maybe no parents who are assholes. Um, my mom was less than loving, and that came some some difficult times. Things like I went away to summer camp and they moved without without telling you. Yeah. So you were picked up and from summer camp and taken back to a brand new house? Well, it got better than that because I was away at a camp for a week. They lived in Chicago at the time but bought a house in Highland Park. I came back, hey, we're moving, but in two days you have to start at the new school, but we're not moving for two months. Mm. So take the train to the school, to Highland Park, walk to school, and do your thing. Well, I was a junior in high school, and these kids in Highland Park were pretty fucking clicky mm-hmm. because they've known each other their whole lives. Right. So it wasn't really easy to break into it. Um, I got a better education, and but that kind of that kind of knocked me for a loop. Yeah. yeah. Was that tough? I mean, that's got to be tough to assimilate. I assume that your an, ability it, to rib people might have helped you in that in that way. Well, I, you know what? This was a different group, and it was a different econ- economic class. It was a different lifestyle. These were the truly entitled. Mm-hmm. And until 1971, when my father did very well in the commodities markets, we did okay, but... Now we were there, yeah. or nouveau, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So I didn't mesh, I didn't blend. But I found a couple of guys, that sounded gay, I found a couple of guys who uh, were in a similar situation. They were transfer students as well. We became friends. Two of them I'm still friends with today. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, anyway, that was that's part of the stuff that just happens you don't get over mm-hmm. summer camp again summer camps were never good for me I was nine years old and playing hardball and I'd never played hardball in my life I played 16 inch softball but mm-hmm. guy threw the ball it went right through my glove hit me in the face and the counselor responded to me or regaled me with March besides being fat and ugly you're stupid oof Nine years old. Yeah. And so I said to him, who are you calling stupid? Nine years old. Sure. That's pretty funny. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it, um, yeah. So that's, that's where, I think that's where some of the damage began. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, failed relationships, failed marriages, failed businesses. Yeah. Successes along the way too, but when... When you look back, 
I mean, when I look back, I think I would have done a couple of things differently, but this is who I am. Yeah. And I don't think I'm an incredible piece of shit. In fact, one of my bits is, my self-help book is, you're not nearly as big a piece of shit as you think you are. I think everybody could use that self-help book. Yes. Chapter one, embrace your mediocrity. Chapter two, if you don't try, you can't fail. Is there a modicum of truth in that for you? No, because I don't embrace my mediocrity. I push back on it. But I would say that the modicum of truth is that would come out in that is that no ownership by anyone for anything. Say whatever the fuck you want. Don't be concerned about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, how's that working out? I, I still there's things that I there are things that I do wrong um, that I don't. Well, I didn't do that. I didn't. You know. And society as a whole, we just go, it wasn't me. Mm-hmm. You know, who did that? It wasn't me. And so, as a comedian, I, I like to bring that out. And because it's stupid, it's inane. And that's what I make fun of. Mm-hmm. Does it apply only to me? Probably not. But if I can make this 70 year old woman laugh by saying, what, you know, I'll stop in the middle of the joke to explain it to her. <laughs> And, she, and I go, no, no, that's fine, because this is a full-service comedy show. Um, so, yeah, I, there's... I mean, it it sounds moribund, and it sounds whatever, and, it, and it's not. It's not meant to dwell on all the negative things that exist out in the world. It's like, hey, you know, that guy who's running for president, he's like the emperor who's naked he's got no clothes on so wake the fuck up mm. the other guy looks like a vampire and he and then you got your lovable idiot grandpa and then a, a woman with a bigger dick and balls than me so those are your four choices right now I don't know who I like the least um, I don't know who would be good for the country I don't think any of them but that's the political process. And no matter what happens with the presidency, fortunately we have a Congress that is absolutely for sale and they will do whatever the special interest groups want them to do, so it's not that big a deal. Do you do politics in your act? I, I do when four times a year when this goes on. I don't talk about... Uh, social events like Ferguson mm-hmm. because they're they're not to be joked about mm-hmm. um, it's it's too devastating and it's too horrible uh, there are I have friends who are political comics they 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 wax politically about uh, Rahm Emanuel and Bruce Rauner and the negative stuff uh, I have opinions but I don't I don't want to preach my opinions. I want to make fun of the consensus opinion right. because that's they're all they're all liars, they're all stupid. They take no responsibility. They can't change the system. But no, no, go ahead convince me you can. Right. So you 
I guess meshing these these two threads together. Um, do you get into the emotional stuff in your act? Like, do, is it based on your life? Do you, you know? Do you do that? Do you stand up and tell stories about yourself? Do you, I know you joke about being damaged, but do you get into it like some comedians do? No, because because they're there to be entertained, and I'm there to have a good time, mm-hmm. and it's not psychotherapy. And there's a line between that. I mean, I talk about my ex-wives because, you know, I say I'm retired from marriage twice. Then I go in to talk about my ex-wives. And, of course, because I have the microphone and it's my comedy show, I get to talk about whatever. Mm. I don't talk about the things I did wrong. Of course not. Although I did just write a joke about that. I said, never go to a marital therapist who also is a physicist because you will find out that you not only have kinetic but potential wrong. Is that a physics joke? I don't get it. It is. Okay. It's a, way over my head. That, that's do, you, right. do you pull that out at like physicist conventions or something? I just, I'm trying, <laughs> pull it out and I also pull out, guys, I'm killing it at work. I got promoted out of my cubicle. Yep, I'm working in a rhombus now. So there's a math yeah, joke. I get that one. That right. one's okay. <laughs> we have two types of energy, potential and kinetic. So potential, kinetic. Got it. So if you have two types of wrong, which really isn't something you could do, sure. You have the potential to be wrong, and then when you screw up, you've been kinetically wrong. I get it. Okay. All right. See, I'm obviously not your target audience for uh, for physics jokes. No, but well, if I would do some English literature jokes, sure, could, then right? I could be right yes. there. So, um, what you kind don't... of wolf do you like, Bale? Okay. See, now I got that. Right, no. I got that. Sure. <laughs> um, said your act isn't your act isn't psychotherapy. Have you done psychotherapy? Sure. Who yeah. hasn't? Well, a lot of people haven't. Have you? Yeah. All right. It's become something of a uh, an accidental theme in this podcast to talk it, about it. If you're not in therapy, then there's something very, very wrong with you. <laughs> because then you're in complete denial about shit that that's either been done to you, you've done, you've experienced, you've seen. You can't not see Schindler's List and walk out of there and go, well, that was light. I mean, if you do, then you're a sociopath. And I granted, probably a lot of people that we both know are sociopaths. Probably, sure. But I, to, to have not experienced therapy, I went to a child psychologist because I was not controllable when I was in the fourth grade. And I would just say shit to make his eyebrows go up and down because that was his <laughs> reflex. And, and the way it worked was you'd go in you and your parental unit would talk, then I would talk to him, then my parental unit would go in and talk to him. Mm. And then I would just say stuff to make him react. Like, oh yeah, yeah, she she threw water on me. She didn't. And I, but his eyebrow grew. <laughs> and he would take notes with his, he had a, an, a big pen, you know, the old cylinder big pens. Mm. That had the you could see the ink in them, right? And this guy had this much ink left in the pen and still used it, and it fucking annoyed me. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> and I was like, and he had the cap on, so and not, not chewed. And who who 
So he's crazy. Yeah. 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 Exactly. So I had to. So I had to have my fun and sure. You know. So you just fucked with him. Yeah. Pretty sure. much. Yeah. And you've been doing it ever since with Pre- everybody. Well, yeah. Yeah. So I'm no. I'm serious a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. You've seen me. I guess I have. That's yeah. true. Uh, one of the times that you were serious, you mentioned. Uh, are both of your parents still alive? Yes, they are. Okay, and I remember you telling me that. You you visit with them regularly. I you? see my dad every Saturday. Okay, we have a great relationship. He's eighty six years old, and he is truly one of the nicest men I've ever met in my life. Um, he's nicer than I am, a, a shit ton nicer than I am, mm-hmm. and he's kind and he's patient, and he endures from the bullshit from myself and my mother and my sister beyond the call. I mean. Incredible. So I spend time. I spend uh, Saturday mornings with him, and uh, my mother. I'll see at holidays, and we'll talk and whatever. She has Parkinson's, and her health is failing. And um, my sister is a very big support to both of them. She lives there, hmm. and uh, I choose not to. And why is that? Uh, because he, he, it becomes. There's a point in, in in life where you end up becoming the adult in the relationship with your parents. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to do that. Uh, not that I'm not mature enough to. It's just that I don't want to do that. It's, that's, it's just too annoying. Yeah. And they're still together, your parents? Still live together? Which I can't believe because if I was married to my mother, I mean... <laughs> In that regard, forget about the psychosocial sure. Freudian yeah. shit. I would have gone. Well, you said your dad's a better person than you. So. Much better person yeah. than me. I, just, he's oof, very kind. Yeah. Now, I remember you also saying something once that if if it weren't for them being here, you would not be here. Right. I would have ventured to a coast of some sort. Why is that? Because... Comedy, acting in Chicago, you're limited by the Dick Wolf shows that are here. Mm-hmm. Or the, there's, you know, four major theaters. You and I have worked together at some not-so-major theaters. Right. Um, and if you're gifted as an actor and talented as a comedian, then you got to go. Yeah. I mean, you can self-promote on YouTube and you can self-promote on and other things and make our own films and we talked about filming some sketches mm-hmm. which we've never done mm-hmm. uh, but it's tough to do because there's the reality family wife kids girlfriends bills life yeah life it gets in the way of what you want to do to create yeah and and there is you know, I'm 60 years old now mm. And I don't feel like I'm 60 years old. I don't, I certainly don't act it. And the parts in theater that are available, and there are, mm-hmm. are, are too, they're fun and, and, and they're challenging and but I, 
sometimes they get passed over. Mm-hmm. I, I really wanted this Shakespeare, not so much because it was Shakespeare, but because it really would have tested me as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, we know I can play the European character. Yeah. But and the other role that I played that I really enjoyed was, was Levine and Glengarry Glen Ross. Yeah, that's a fun. That's a fun one. And Mamet is is incredible because he writes the way you speak with right. a ton of ellipses and a ton of pauses and the and a angst, ton of f bombs. The the angst that comes in a conversation. Mm-hmm. He writes that, so it's that's fun. Doing Barefoot in the Park, being Victor Velasco, that was fun too, but that was an identity. Yeah. Levine, I could really fall into. Yeah, I actually played him in uh, in college. Levine. Did you? Yeah, and it's fun. It's it's tough. It's kind of a tough part to, to yeah. nail. I mean, it's it's a desperate, it's a sort of desperation that you have to inhabit that ends up being kind of wearing on you. Yeah, and that's that's a, that at a certain point in your life. If you haven't had a ton of success, and then you go play that actor, mm. that's watching Death of a Salesman, watching Glengarry Glen Ross. Mm. Those those are unnerving mm-hmm. because they will strike a chord. And as as an audience member, I want I was like, Ugh. I want you know because this. You know that's those are sad yeah, stories. It's tough to watch. Right? As an actor, though, you can embrace it, play with it, make it your own. Yeah. I didn't watch the movie with Jack Lemmon right. because I didn't want to give Jack Lemmon. Yeah. I wanted to be me. Yeah. I didn't watch the Robert Redford film portion yeah. of what we did. Right. Uh, in because I wanted to be me. Right. What's next for you? What are you auditioning for? I'm taking the summer off. Are you? Then, yeah, maybe in the fall I'll try to get back into something. But the summer's just too short, you know, to go to rehearsals for three hours a night. Summer's too short. And, uh, you know, I've got some trips planned and everything. So taking the summer off and then I'll try to get back into it. Because Death of a Salesman was actually a pretty good um, confidence booster, I guess. You know, it was it was a it's a daunting show it was a daunting part to take on and I was pretty proud of the work that I did in it and so I think that gave me a little bit more of a a little more oomph to to keep going with it what made you the most proud of that uh I think the fact that I was by the way who's interviewing whom here exactly uh I think the fact that it, it demanded a lot emotionally it demanded a lot uh to tap into you know Biff is a very angry sad tragic character and um i've had emotional and mental issues before and to i i didn't know whether i would be able to tap into that and bring it out on stage and i think that i did at certain points there would be times when i was i would have to sit by myself and try to get myself into that headspace and there were a few times at least once when I I got a little too too close to it you know like it was almost like touching a touching a live wire from when I I recall mentally and emotionally being that that depressed and that low and I I sort of was able to get in there and 
and touch it, and it was like, oh shit, I don't even know if I want to go that deep, you know. But That's what makes a badass actor, when you can go there and then go, all right, let's just step away yeah, from the edge. Back it off a little bit here, yeah. That's right, because unless you're playing opposite Robert De Niro, if you bring, at least for me, bringing that level of emotion, mm. the actor opposite you, unless they're an extremely well-trained black box Meisner actor, mm. isn't going to be able to handle it. Right. And that's... But you know what? My responsibility as an actor is to bring it every freaking time. Mm. And I don't... I respect my partner and I respect my scene partner but if they listen and connect, then they should know that this is what I'm doing in the scene and it doesn't carry over. Right. So you mentioned before um, the idea of life getting in the way of art and creativity and goals and all that. Is that a source of frustration for you? It's not frustration as much as it is the reality when when I've chosen to be an artist and thank you for acknowledging that I gave a little head nod sure yeah I appreciate that <laughs> then that's that's stepping into a whole different area it's not your your good days are not based on what you sold and what you made or what you they're based on did you have an opportunity to do something and get rejected? That's messed up. <laughs> and maybe you don't get rejected, but... Most of the time you do. You do. Yeah. And not only that, you have to embrace that rejection, be grateful for having the opportunity to be rejected, <laughs> and work harder... So the next time when you get rejected, it'll be for a different reason. <laughs> so, good. S sign me up. Yeah. So for every lovely person on The Voice, because we watch that here, uh, that you see those 12 people, there have been thousands that have never met Blake or or Pharrell, mm. that meet associate producers that go, yeah, no. And that's rejection. Mm. So there's rejection in music, there's rejection in comedy, that we know about the rejection in acting. Yeah. I have friends in acting who say, I only do theater. And I'm like, why? That, even if you're really, really good why only do theater? Why not film? Why not TV? Why not sketch? Why not stand-up? Why not something? Mm -hmm. Because you're, that's being comfortable. I don't think as an artist you can be comfortable. I think you have to push yourself into whatever. So yeah, so, so like I said, if you just say, I only do this. Well, when, when I write the Mrs. Fukenbeich 
and we film it, then you won't be asked to be in it. You won't do it. Hmm. Because you will be worried about how you look or whatever. Right. I don't ever worry about that hmm. while I'm doing it. Beforehand, afterwards, sure. Yeah. But when you're in the moment, and, and so that's like, to me, it's like saying, I'm deciding not to be in the moment. Yeah. I'm deciding to avoid this opportunity. I don't do commercials. Okay, don't do them. But I know what you may do in theater because mm-hmm. you're not equity. So if you're considering it as a career and not just being a telemarketer or something else, then fucking A, open yourself up. Yeah. So I'm curious, how do you... How do you make yourself uncomfortable? How do you push yourself in that way with stand-up? Because like you said, you, you would do roasts you know, once a week for the rest of your life and be happy, but that's not what you're talking about. You know? Right, because it's not available. I mean, that's, that's, not, that's not the reality. I'm not getting called to do those Well, roasts. sure, yeah, but, but I, you know, that, that's just an example. Like, if you, if you had your druthers, you would do that forever, but that wouldn't be necessarily pushing yourself. You know? How do you do that to yourself you know, as, a, as, as a comedian? I think, as a comedian... I have to write what's real to me. Um, and I, I used to sit and write um, the morning pages from The Artist's Way. It, I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with the book. It's a book, and you get up every morning, and I mean it really first thing in the morning, and you write three legal pad pages and just whatever is flowing in your mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm doing this. This is bad. I had a fight with my girlfriend. Blah, blah, blah. Whatever comes out. Mm-hmm. And I've done that. And out of there, jokes arise. And it's, it's exciting. Do I do it enough? No. Do I do it a lot? No. Um, sometimes the discouragement gets in the way of the challenge to improve, the challenge to succeed. If you said, why aren't you at this next level? Um, Some are self-limiting beliefs, which I don't know exactly what all of them are. I know some of them. Some are realistic beliefs number one my age I'm I think the oldest or second oldest person in the Chicago comedy scene Mm. there's a few people in their 40s a few in their 30s and everybody else younger than that I get along with them Uh, I laugh with them I'm and they recognize some of them recognize my abilities and talents and then others don't Mm -hmm. The, the difficulty that arises on a day-to-day basis is comparing yourself with others. Um, when I get in, when I do a show, I just the show I was telling you about before, um, I knew all the comics that I was on the show with. And this, this one comic came up to me at the end of the show and gave me a hug and said, 
I've never seen you do a 45 minute set. That was amazing. Because when I'm doing my thing and connecting with the audience, then I, that's my jam. Mm -hmm. When you go to an open mic, you're trying out a joke for four minutes. Right. Uh, sometimes it takes me four minutes to say hello and just to connect with the audience. So, yes, it's the battle. It, then it's, should you say this? Should you say that? Is this politically correct? Should you talk, you know, where are the dick jokes? Where do they come in? Um, what's too insulting? What's not insulting enough? You can't think about that when you're on stage. I don't. Mm -hmm. I go in, my pre-show mantra is, I connect with the audience and we all have a good time. So I try to make it as, about them as much as me. Mm -hmm. So they're, it, if anything, it's a little self-serving because I'll feel better when they're laughing. Sure. And I'll do whatever it takes to get them to laugh. Mm -hmm. Almost. Right. So yeah, your, your acting goals are to be on one of the Dick Wolf shows. A do you have... A national commercial. A national commercial, okay. And um, if I, I think if you said to me, I'm Satan and you can make a deal with me, you can have three things, but then I get your soul, are you in? Mm -hmm. I got those three things. And they are? Here, before you answer that, yeah, come on, put to the mic. <clears throat> okay. All right, Beelzebub, here's the deal. You can call me both. Okay. All right. Um, number one, I want to weigh 175 pounds no matter what I eat. <laughs> and I want to weigh that tomorrow. Okay. Okay. Number two, I want tomorrow's stock prices today. Sure. Mm -hmm. And number three, I want every time I tell a joke, people to, to laugh until they can't stop. Nope. And then you can have my soul. Sure. So your lesser goals are to be on a national commercial. A national commercial. One of the Dick Wolf shows. Right. Do you have goals as a stand-up? I want to be here by this time or anything along in that vein? That's a little bit tougher because that's less in my control. Right. Uh, I, I think that I would... I used to say I want to be a headliner at a national club, but in order to be a headliner at a national club, you have to be a draw. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to be... I've worked with T.J. Miller. I've worked with Hannibal Burris. Mm -hmm. uh, these guys are draws. They go to theaters. I don't see myself being in that realm. Why I don't, not? I don't think it's attainable. Why not? Um, I think age, I think opportunity is limited, mm -hmm. and I, I th be, comedy is a lot more personal to me than anything else. And when I get on stage and I'm talking to an audience and connecting with them and telling them my jokes... This is me that they're rejecting or not rejecting. But before you can get there, there's a producer or an executive or a booker 
who's looked at your tape, prejudged you, and said, nah. Right. And the that person's experience, they may be a bartender who is now a club manager. Yeah. And that's all. When you're when you're in theater or you're cast in a role, you bring yourself to that role, but those aren't your words. Right. You make them your own. But it's not the same as writing your own words and bringing those to people. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference. I, actors I've talked to, improvisers I've talked to, they think what I do in stand-up is the most difficult thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Sounds impossible. Yeah. Because it's something, it's like being your own playwright of your one-man show <laughs> that you've produced and directed. Right. Without getting any insight from anybody. Mm -hmm. Except audiences. Right. Who will either, or wow. And that's probably as brave as it gets. Yeah. So, is it, is it too late? No. Uh... It's just got to be a different approach. And it's got to be... One of the things that I'm learning, even now, is that I want my comedy to have a message. And the message is always laced with gratitude for the audience taking the time to listen to me and to allow me to make them forget about their day. Mm. whatever it is because maybe in that 40 minutes or 30 minutes or 20 minutes there's a little less hate there's a little less angst there's a little less what loathing or they forget about whatever because I've made fun of a guy in a pink shirt or I, I drew an analogy I did a birthday party for an Indian gentleman there was 175 people there 174 Indians one white lady myself and another comic yeah. and this guy owned 15 subway restaurants yeah. and I said you know what my mother would say why don't you own 20 <laughs> and they cracked up because this guy heard it from his mother as I found out oh really yeah <laughs> and that once again that was I, you, you know I use different dialects mm. I didn't use the Indian voice at all. Mm. I did not speak this way. And I didn't curse, which I was... I was there were children there, so oh, I did sure. It's not tough if you prepare for it. If yeah. you go in and try to wing it, it's fucking impossible. Right. <laughs> but if you concentrate, you can do it. Or yeah. I can do it. A yeah. lot of people can't. A lot of people can't do stuff like that, where they choose not to, a lot of comics. I'm like, yeah, I'll try it. Maybe it'll suck. Yeah. Maybe it'll be amazing. This time I got lucky and it was amazing. Yeah. Or they got lucky and it was amazing. So, a friend of mine who's a comic says to me, you know, we're just a couple of lovable assholes. Because cause I, I, I kid her all the time. I said, stop saying you're blessed. Okay, that's creepy and blah. And you're Muslim, so <laughs> nobody's going to buy that. Uh, 
you're funny and you're sincere and you're serious about what you're doing and you want to make people laugh and you know the the money and the accolades and the fame and the whatever that comes later my biggest problem concern fear is I'm running out of time yeah and I don't want to run out of time and I don't want to stop either I don't know if it's the true definition of insanity to keep doing the same thing over and over again. Does that make me insane or does that make me an artist? I don't know. I think a little bit of both. There's a break, a shortcut, or somewhere in there. I'm looking for it still. Yeah. As are you, as are everybody that we know. Yeah. And it's just a question of, do you say, ah, you know what, i got to get out with my life not there yet do you see that point no it's not even in your in your purview I mean I'm not do I see me doing this at 110 well if I made that deal with Satan like we talked yeah, about yeah, yeah for sure good, yeah. but no I don't know I mean I get concerned I stay up late that that adds to the damage sure you know you know the voice or the spinning plates like yeah. If I do this, how am I going to pay this bill? And if I don't do that, and I audition for this show, how am I going to stay home and have a relationship? And if I do this and I don't do that, and I don't get called back... It's called then, anxiety. That's right. my, that's my uh, yeah, default. Exactly. So you go to audition after audition, audition, you get rejected and rejected and rejected. You come back and you go, how did it go? Well, it was good. Did you get called back? No. Ooh. And then whoever you're telling that to looks at you like you're either an idiot... Or is afraid of you because why do you keep doing this? Right. Because I, because when you get yes, it you don't think about all the no's, mm-hmm. or you learn from the no's and you get better, and then when you walk into the room, you become the bravest Sir Toby Belch they've ever seen, and the reason they don't want you has nothing to do with you. The reason I didn't get cast as Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman that you were in mm-hmm. had nothing to do with me. It's a tough thing to learn. Uh, I think a lot of people still haven't, haven't grasped that. Well, when I found out the truth, then <laughs> it wasn't that I wasn't good enough. It wasn't that I didn't look the role. It was something else. Mm-hmm. And those are the intangibles that none of us have any control over in life. Yeah. Even if I was selling insurance, a lot of people sell insurance. Why, am they gonna, why are they going to buy insurance from me as opposed to you or as opposed to Dave or Dan or Sandy, Sandy or whoever? Mm-hmm. Uh, Sandy. Sure, why not? Why not? It's because you connected or you're different. But i got to tell you, if Sandy's my nephew, I'm buying it from Sandy. Mm-hmm. And that's that. And it doesn't matter that your presentation or mine was better, the product's better, it's more affordable. It just, none of it matters. Right. And that's, that's a reality that a lot of people face in life. I think as actors and artists, we, we face it more because it's something that we create from within. And then to have something that personal rejected is difficult. 
So, how do you deal with it? Do you, I mean, does it, do you have like a mantra? To, how does it affect you? Do you, how do you, do you let it affect you or not? Here's what I've developed. And let's talk about commercial auditions. Mm -hmm. Go in for a commercial audition. You're off book. You built your box. You know the character, whatever it is. You go in there, connect with the casting director. Hi, you act like you're their solution. You finish your audition. They say thank you. You say thank you. You walk out of there and you freaking forget it. Then you get a call back. And you're like, okay. And here's where the anxiety starts up. Because instead of 50 or 100 people that they saw, now they're looking at 10. Mm -hmm. So you go back and you see people who are friends of yours and some that you may think are better actors than you. Doesn't matter. You walk in there and you do the same thing and you bring it and you, at this point the director of the commercial or whatever will be there and they'll say can you do this and you listen to them and you do what you think you heard mm -hmm. and again take a direction thank you and walk out and then let that go as best you can then you get the call from your agent you're on hold well, now that means that the client has requested you to be on hold so you don't have any other jobs to book. Mm -hmm. So now the anxiety is there because this is a national Lexus commercial and you are on hold for it, mm -hmm. which will mean A, you get. I get one of my dreams, national commercial. B, they'll be fun as hell. C, it'll be a shit ton of money. Mm -hmm. And D, it'll allow me to afford to join the union. Mm -hmm. You're on hold. We'll make a decision by 5 p.m. It's 5.30. I'm looking at my phone. There's no text. Mm -hmm. Now... I'm like, all right, forget it. They didn't say anything. Maybe I'll get whatever. Then I get a call. I'm released. And that's all you hear is you've been released. You want to say why? There's no why. You've been released. Mm -hmm. Move your attention. Get along. That's that after the callback you have no as an actor you have no control right you hope and you can let but you can let it go you're like all right well i went in i did my thing but when they they come back to you and say hey hold on we're still considering you mm. then the hope creeps in the dreams the fantasies wow what if this is all that mm. You've been released. I've been on both ends of that phone call. Mm -hmm. You've been booked. You've been released. Um, I got my... I was at the gym. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and my... 
I was walking around the track, and I, I don't usually have my phone, but my agent called, and she goes, Rick, you've been booked. And I'm like, fucking hey! And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> she goes, no, no, I wish my clients were all that excited about it. Because I was truly excited. Because I had a chance to be in a Solo Cup commercial mm. that would play at Wrigley Field. Um, P.S. I filmed it. Mm. I got paid for it. I got cut out. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, so it goes. Right. I, so a couple of questions yeah. as a follow-up to this. I want to know, one, what is your... How do you... Forget it. How do you let it go? And two, what does your anxiety look like as you as you have it? Okay, let's. How do I let it go? Um, you just, I just have had enough training, and I mean this sincerely as an actor. The on part of the on camera training is to be able to get in front of the camera, snap into it. Do it, connect, get out. Because yeah. your job at that first is to get a call back. After that, I have to realize, so after the audition, one of the things I hate to hear was, that was great, perfect. I would rather hear nothing <laughs> than an accolade because I'm so far away from booking the gig at that point in time that it doesn't matter. Unless they absolutely need my voice, my talent, my face, my this. Mm -hmm. That's So I don't want to hear that. I want to hear thank you. And I'll say thank you. And I walk out. And I let it go because it's the audition. And I can let it go after the callback. And then on the way back to the car, I'm thinking, well, should I have done this in the second chance? Okay. And then I do a drink, I eat something to, no, no, I run eight miles and it helps me. <laughs> right. Yeah. And as far as anxiety, um, I think, I think I would be wouldn't I wouldn't want to be without the anxiety I would like to control it better yeah but the anxiety means I still care mm. to me anyway especially when anxiety about I don't it's not so much the anxiety while I'm in the room the fear of going in and connecting mm -hmm. because it's a performance and we perform right whether it's for a camera or a group of a hundred people we all perform but it's the anxiety afterwards that will creep in. Did I do the best I could have done? And if I can answer the question yes, then the anxiety dissipates. And if I have too much self-doubt, that means I didn't prepare enough. Hmm. But if I prepared enough, and I know my monologue, and I know where I'm going to move, and I know I'm comfortable in the room and I have confidence when I walk in it's not up to me anymore yeah. I brought the best me I can bring and then they're going to say yes or they're going to say no mm -hmm. 
and I, I, anxiety can be debilitating a lot, <laughs> a lot, a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also, I think it's a check and balance of, are you that self-assured? Are you that cocky? Are you that beyond? I mean, I believe in myself when I'm in the room and I'm doing my thing mm-hmm. because that's my job. Right. And be brave and be the biggest badass that you can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you don't have that anxiety or that fear or the gratitude, then do something else. Because a true artist is never going to be... They'll project it. Mm. They're never going to be 100% I got this. Because then everybody you and I know would be on stage at the Goodman and Chicago Shakes and starring in every movie in the world. And we're not. And it's not because we're not good actors or good performers or good comedians. It's because we're not in L.A. We're not noticed. We're not a name. Mm -hmm. How did Meryl Streep get to be a name? Well, she's fucking good. Mm -hmm. Well, I, uh, as a younger man than you, uh, look to you as as sort of an inspiration in the way that you approach, the, the way that you approach your work and the way that you approach your life uh, and I appreciate you sitting down and talking to me about it I think that was it's fun I loved working with you in the show I love talking with you uh, I wish it was more often and maybe we'll be cast in something again or maybe, maybe we'll actually film that Mrs. Fukenbeich sketch yeah let's do it maybe one day maybe yeah. maybe well thank you I really appreciate you talking to me you're welcome this was a lot of fun